Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Steve Sippa. Steve, yesterday, official ESPN astrologer Andrea Malis, that's at Virgo in service on Twitter, tweeted this, let Matt Harvey pitch, Aries Warrior on big stage. Scorpio Scott Boris a bit controlling on innings pitch limit. Mets GM Scorpio Alderson ain't having it. So in that spirit, if you could uh, ask someone for advice, astrologer or otherwise, about what the Mets should do with Matt Harvey going forward, who would you ask? Well, I'm going to go with the tried and true method that uh, GM regimes of Mets past have used. And I'm going to head down to the bagel store and see what the guys think. Omar's crew. Hashtag Omar's crew. Yo. That guy at the bagel shop. They know what they're talking about. They usually do. So all I remember as a kid, like the astrology section in the uh, 
Hartford Current. It was always like on the same page underneath the comics next mm. to uh, Ann Landers and like the bridge column, like the card game. Well, it's where it belongs. Yeah. So logically then, I'm going to write to the bridge person ah. for advice on this. Not Ann Landers, who is unfortunately, of course, deceased. But they have a grasp of, good grasp of strategy. They have to think multiple moves ahead. So I think whoever writes like the syndicated bridge <laughs> column for the UPI or whatever the press syndicate is nowadays um, would have some good advice in this matter. Because God knows I don't, and we will get to it in a second. <laughs> this is episode 137 of Amazing Avenue Audio. And uh, this is Saturday night. We're recording this as the Mets are currently uh, destroying the Marlins. And we uh, recorded this Friday night, Steve. This exact same show. Yeah, word for word, almost. Almost, yeah. Um, and then some stuff happened that made all of what we said. We, we usually look like idiots a few days after the podcast comes out anyway. But we have a chance to rectify it this time. <laughs> the new, <laughs> some, uh, what is it, some new shit has come to light. It has. And it's pretty smelly. It is. So Matt Harvey... To recap where we are, as we're recording this on Saturday night now, on Friday, John Heyman wrote a piece quoting Matt Harvey's agent, Scott Boris, that there was a hard 180 innings pitched limit for Matt Harvey, that the Mets were not acknowledging. There was no really... We didn't know where it was going to go from there. Boris did a whirlwind media tour that afternoon. Harvey didn't really talk to the press that night. The Mets lost a horrible game. We are all there. Um, watching it probably. And uh, we said some things on the podcast suggesting that maybe uh, nothing would really come of this. And then maybe there's some miscommunication between Boris and Harvey. Maybe he was just laying the groundwork for something. And then today happened, Steve. And I sent you a message around 2.30 that we needed to re-record. <laughs> well... So, where we are now, as far as I can tell, and stuff seems to change by the hour at this point, there's the implication from both Scott Boris and Matt Harvey that uh, Dr. Andrews, among potentially others, you know, uh, Dr. Alchek, the Mets uh, team surgeon, and uh, Dr. Latrache, who runs the sort of the Job Clinic, have recommended some sort of hard cap. They don't all agree. But there's no further information in terms of who's advocating what. You know, Harvey confirmed as much in his media hit this afternoon, saying that as far as I know, talking to Dr. Andrews, it's 180 innings pitch limit. And I don't, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about Tuesday. He's thinking about Qualcomm. He's, thinking, he's just here to honor Qualcomm. <laughs> and it puts the Mets in a bind. Because I, I think, you know, when we recorded this on Friday, like, oh, did Boris go off the reservation? I think I suggested, I'm not going to go back to confirm, but I'm pretty sure I suggested that he doesn't do that. He yeah. works for Harvey. And Harvey even said, you know, it's, he hired Boris for a reason, to take care of his interests. And there is a certain type of player that goes and gets Scott Boris as their agent. I'm not saying Scott Boris isn't a good agent. He certainly is. There are other good agents out there, other good agencies. You know, when you When you hire Scott Boris, you get the Scott Boris experience. <laughs> and even if we assume... So here's the thing that confuses me about it, and we'll get into sort of the scenarios and how this might play out in the future and what the Mets can really do from here. Let's give Harvey's camp the complete benefit of the doubt. Let's assume everything they're saying is true. 
And that's not entirely difficult to do because the Mets handling of injuries and medicals in the past does not inspire confidence in any of us, I would imagine. No. But what's the play? What do they get out of this? Yeah, that's what that's what completely baffles me. I don't see any situation here where Matt Harvey, where his brand comes out looking better. Right, and it doesn't. I mean, it probably doesn't cost him any money long term, assuming no. he stays healthy. Because you know, pitching on the free agent market is going to get paid, especially players that can pitch like Matt Harvey. <clears throat> However. Um, this is this shit follows him to whatever locker room he goes to now if he shuts down or whatever has to happen happens to keep him under that limit whatever that looks like I mean you know if if you screw up on the field you make a bad play you, you screw up somehow it's luck of the draw whatever but I mean if you're a bad teammate that's like off the field shit that is uh, not good And look, he was really concerned about future earnings potential or locking in now if he thinks there's... And look, he just had Tommy John surgery and a second Tommy John surgery would cost him a significant amount of money. He could take a below market extension. Unfortunately, the Mets probably still can't even offer that. <laughs> you know, something that even looks like not only the Corey Kluber deal, but something that looks like the Bumgarner deal or trying to think of a comparable sort of six-year deal, five, six-year deal with an option. But I don't think the Mets can offer that. And we know that the relationship between Harvey and Mets ownership, who will be signing off on that deal, isn't great uh, right now and really hasn't been for a while. I mean, if sort of the nuclear option happens and they somehow get the Mets to shut him down at 180 innings, whether that's two more starts and done, or they skip him a second time, however they stretch it out, you know, it'll... If they want to force a trade from the team, that'll probably happen now. Because I think he's probably, uh, you know, napalm in that locker room. Mm. But it didn't seem to bother Bartolo Colon when they were Not- talking about it on the broadcast tonight. They had, like, the sort of the long shot of Harvey in the uh, dugout, and Colon just came up and did his handshake with him. Hey, nothing bothers nothing Bartolo. Nothing bothers Bartolo. Um, but it's just, it's, especially in the New York media market, he's just going to get killed for the next three weeks. Oh, yeah. Short of him just taking the ball every fifth day, Pitching in the playoffs, throwing his 210 innings or whatever, however far the Mets get there, assuming they get there. You know, he's a pariah. It's just, like we said, like, I don't, I don't timing, see the benefits. The timing of it makes no sense. Yeah. So I guess let's, let's sort of get into the scenarios. These aren't all the scenarios. I'm not doing this in order of likeliness. Um, it could be a part be a combination of these part of this could be accurate i just don't know um i do not have good information certainly as much information as any of the parties involved and i don't trust anything that anything any of them say publicly let's be clear about that yeah so scenario number one steve harvey is feeling fatigued or is actually hurt the mets are not taking it seriously Harvey and Boris went to the press sort of as the nuclear option. Scenario one. And again, there's some precedence for this. Mets mm-hmm. have, the Mets have botched this before with Boris clients. Look at, look at Carlos Beltran's knee a few years ago. Now, the timing of that was different. It wasn't in the middle of a pennant race. But 
Boris, the Mets fought him on it, and Boris won, and it, Boris and Beltran were in the right there. Look at the uh, quotes in Pedro Martinez's book about Jeff Wilpon, you know, basically, yep. you know, you're going to pitch. But while it's not hard to believe ownership would say that to Matt Harvey, it's a little harder to believe the front office would risk this coming out. And if he is hurt or fatigued, why doesn't he just tell the team? Because he's maintained all year, he's feeling fine, he wants to take the ball every fifth day. Right, I mean, he's obviously not, you know, he's obviously outspoken. He's not going to hide uh, issues. So scenario number two. Harvey and Boris are concerned about potential future arm health if he continues to pitch past this cap, whatever, and whenever it was established by his medical team. But as of right now, there's no specific concern to his overall arm health or no actual injury at this point in time. And, and look, based, that's, yeah. Just based on his performance on the field, you know, there has been no degradation or anything, you know, to the eye of, you know, his, his ability to pitch. And it's look, not like he's obviously pitching injured or anything like that. And that's a callous point of view if you're, you know, maybe even a little cynical. But, you know, the Mets owe Matt Harvey nothing past this season. No. They could non-tender if he blows out his oh, arm. Oh, God, imagine. And for the balance of the season, they own less than 100 grand. A second Tommy John surgery costs them hundreds of millions of dollars. Like the first rule of pitching, don't pitch. <laughs> Pretty much. Now, I don't personally think there's much risk in another 50 innings on that arm, but I'm not a doctor, and I don't know the specifics of Harvey's surgery. Because not all Tommy John surgeries are created equally. Now, again, like with number one, it flies in the face of everything you said publicly since last summer when he wanted to pitch in September. What he said about the sixth man this year. Um, and it flies in the face of baseball culture. I mean, this stuff does happen. Um, but it's, you know, guys get branded with it. And it's, we talked about it, we talked sort of about the Rafael Montero begging off rehab, allegedly. That's a hell of a thing to accuse a player of. Not wanting to, you know, pitch or play for his team. Now, the relationship is unbalanced. Um, you, it's set up in a certain way where the first, certainly the first three years, really the first six years, a player like Matt Harvey is getting paid far less than he is worth. So there is some reason, if you're him and, and Scott Boris, be looking towards that free agent deal. And he's already had a Tommy John surgery. But we have to, you know, we're fans. You know, our interests are different. We want to see Matt Harvey shove. And we don't care if Matt Harvey pitches great. You know, World Series MVP, pitches games one, four, and seven. Or pulls a Madison Bumgarner, whatever. And then comes in next March and his elbow explodes a second time. Because we got our fucking World Series. Matt Harvey's a legend. Matt Harvey just cost himself $200 million, maybe more. <laughs> but that's the reality of it. So our perspectives are different. But, you know, baseball culture, it's machismo. You want to you wanna be Madison Bumgarner. That's the... You know, Madison Bumgarner's going to make a way, way lot... Uh, way less money over the next few years than Clayton Kershaw. But if you're a baseball player, you want to be Madison Bumgarner. 
Mm. I, well, I don't think. No, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm saying that. I, I know what you're sort of. Uh, yeah, no, I it, know what you mean too. But you want you want that uh having like that that star right, moment right that builds you your brand. Star. And I'm not yeah. saying Bumgarner's a better pitcher than Kershaw. He isn't. He's not going to make more money than Kershaw. But that like right, like Kershaw. If you if you think back Kershaw's entire career, yeah. can you pick out like one specific moment of greatness? I mean, I don't follow the Dodgers in much depth, but I really can't. Like maybe you know. He struck out fifteen. I think he's thrown two guys the other day. <laughs> uh, did he? I don't. I don't even know. But you know, you could look at Bumgarner, and the first thing that comes to mind is that World Series, that that right. postseason run. It's 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 sort of it gets back to sort of the stuff you fantasize about in your backyard when you're six. Yep. Those kind of moments. And look, there are guys out there that would rather have Kershaw's contract and don't even really care if they're Clayton Kershaw, and I can't blame yeah. them for that. <laughs> but. You know, what, like, how do you think Harvey's viewed in the Mets locker room right now? I mean, we don't know, obviously. We can't put ourselves in that position, but we can guess. Like, just look at Paul Duca's Twitter feed right now if you want to get an idea of probably what's going through, uh, <laughs> you know, like Daniel Murphy's head right now. Or, you know, David Wright, who has a degenerative back condition and worked his ass off to get back on the field. To be here for this. And look, Matt Harvey's got to take care of Matt Harvey because nobody else will. But it is, again, flying. And that's what makes it so weird to do it now. Yeah. Because the Mets seem to want to really tap the brakes on him more than Matt Harvey wanted. More than I wanted and stuff I've said on the podcast. But I guess, you know, again, we're not in the room with the doctors. I don't know what the risks are here. Yeah, and and this whole this all this information coming to light now kind of makes the whole six man rotation thing and his vociferous you know being against it a lot more puzzling because you know it would have kept his innings down further. Like, did did he not just just not want to pitch in the playoffs at all? And I mean, if he had more innings skipped. So he would have more innings for now. Boris you know. just assumed they were going to, what he's saying publicly, so they would just shut him down at 180 like Strasbourg and manage it however they saw fit. Yeah. Which brings us to number, scenario number three. The Mets have known about the innings limit all along, planned on ignoring it, or viewed it as like soft or only applying to the regular season. But you would think, given what happened last season with Harvey wanted to come back in September, that they would have all their ducks in a row here, that there would have been meetings about this that Harvey would have been in the room for these meetings. Maybe even Scott Boris, where there would be conversations. But, you know, if you want to look at it, the way they've managed Harvey this year has been a little odd. They've pushed extra innings and blowouts here and there, pulled him when he's been cruising. Uh, Can you read into that? I mean, they manage stuff like that bad generally. (laughs) And with pitchers other than Matt Harvey. And again, if you didn't know this, why not start him on May 1st? If you want to be really cynical, you can say the Mets own internal evaluation of the team was they didn't see a playoff team here and they figured they could just shut him down in mid-September when they were out of the race and he'd be coming up on 180 innings like he is now. Or they thought if it if they were competitive, Harvey would just pitch through it because he's a competitive guy. Those are probably the most likely scenarios. But in that in that scenario, you're still ignoring all the, like, the medical advice, which is bad. But again, there is precedence for it.
it, it would be a hard argument to be like, yeah, but, you know, 10 more innings, what's that going to do? You know, 180, 190, whatever. You know, okay, that could be a very uh, smooth argument. Not so, that it's necessarily a good medical one, but... I mean, so what now? Boris has walked it back a little bit, said they're coming up with a plan to figure out how they're going to get him through the rest of the season in the playoffs. But you, this, this one's not going back in the bottle, especially giving Harvey's public comments today. Oh, no. So if the 180 inning innings pitch cap is real, and it's a hard cap, and you want to avoid a forced shutdown, which they can do, and all they have to... all the all Boris and Harvey have to do is complain about fatigue or that he's pitching hurt and use the collective bargaining agreement to get a medical opinion. And if the 180 cap is real, Dr. Andrews will say, shut him down. Cause I said, shut him down in 180 innings, <laughs> you know, and the relationship is already ruined. So what does it really matter at this point? The I mean, the baseball ops awesome, if you want to keep him to 180, he's got 14 innings to go as you shut him down for two weeks, working back in as a reliever, couple appearances during the regular season to get his feet wet, and then you have him for about 10 innings in the playoffs, which in one inning burst probably gets you through. Now, that's a change in routine, certainly. Is that medically advisable? I mean, apparently that conversation has happened and been shot down already, according to Christy Ackert. Hmm. Um, but even, you know, if you wanted to do that, what's the locker room like? Right, he's still, he's still a pariah. He's still the guy that turned his back on the team when the team needed him the most. By the same token, you just send him home if he wants. If look, if they want to shut down 180s, have him make two more starts and send him home. Yeah. Does that work? You know, can you manage that again within the locker room, within the media? There's just questions we are absolutely unqualified to answer. What I keep coming back to is again another question. I'm very unqualified to answer. <laughs> What's the risk here? You know, I'm generally sympathetic to players, labor over management in baseball. And five hundred thousand dollars isn't nothing. It's about what I think he's making six hundred. I think I'm a decent enough raise. But it's an issue of scale. We're not talking about like dollars per per war thing. But if you want to use that, fine. Um, the Mets are making a lot of money off the back of Matt Harvey. And pitchers like Matt Harvey, that aren't, you know, subject to pre-arb deals like harvey is on right now you know one year contracts essentially are making again clayton kershaw money but i don't know what happens if he throws 210 innings this year probably hopefully nothing but probably and it, if it is something, is it something that would have happened regardless? Right. We just, there's so, we, we don't know anything about pitcher health. No. You know that pitchers break, it's what they do, as Toby Hyde says. Right. As a pitcher, as the as his agent, those are risks, though, you can't take. Right. So but you're good and, his, no. and your client's good. Boris is, you know, if he doesn't pitch past 180, he probably doesn't get hurt this year. Or certainly the injury risk is far lower than it would be otherwise. And that gets you one year closer to your free agent deal. And gets you a pretty nice ARB award next year regardless because of what arbitration looks at. Yeah, he's due for a big raise. <laughs> I mean, speaking of that, there's something that solves this very easily, Steve. 
You and my Mets three- don't make the playoffs. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> three-year extension that covers his arbitration years. Now, the question would be, after all of this, would the Boris camp and the Harvey camp be willing to even do that, given now the very strange relationship with player and team? Yeah, I mean, money solves everything to a certain extent. It doesn't cut into any of his free agent time. It, it, shares, it shares, again, it shares the risk between player and team. So now if he blows out his arm, like it's not $200 million, but it's $40 million probably. That stuff matters. Sorry, I'm responding to a tweet about bourbon. <laughs> Shows your priorities are. I can't, I can't leave my guy hanging. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, on a three-year deal like that, say it's 340, say it's eight, well, let's say nine, nine, 13, 18. First three arb years. Which I think is That's reasonable. a fair approximation of what he would probably get in arbitration assuming he's healthy the next three seasons. Or two seasons, really. It's still a tradable deal if you want to deal him down the road because you can't afford to tie him to a free agent contract. You know, maybe it's something you should have considered before the season when it probably would have been too risky. And now maybe it's too dangerous. But if you think he's that good and you believe that there's not an injury risk to keep him pitching, you get some cost control out of it as well. Um, do the Mets have the money to offer that? Are the Wilpons particularly inclined to sign off on it right now? Again, stuff I don't really have good information on. I can guess, and the answer to all of those questions is probably no. <laughs> Which brings us to the, I think, the most pertinent question. Can he take the mound on Tuesday against the Nationals? Yes, he can. Will he? Should he, Steve Sippa? Should he? Should he? He should. Damn right he should. I disagree. I think assuming you can get Syndergaard on his routine, I would use him. I mean, I can be coldly rational. I can hashtag process this and you know, give Harvey the ball and get your 14 innings out of him or you know, force him to at least admit to an injury that may exist or use the CBA to get his medical opinion for a shutdown. The relationship's already ruined and he probably gets traded in the offseason anyway. But I want, you know, at a certain time, you want the guy on the mound that wants to pitch that day and wants to pitch Game 7 of the World Series. Right. I mean, I don't disagree. At the same time, arguably, that series is the most important series of the season. I don't know, we're facing the Nationals. Depending on how we do, you know, either it becomes our, our lead becomes very tight compared to, you know, where we are in the season, or we can cruise the rest of, you know, cruise into October. I want our best pitchers on the mound during the season, and Harvey is, regardless of everything, one of our three best pitchers. I just don't know where his head's at. I would I would be concerned. Mm. I don't know how it plays out. I know whatever whatever happens, the hashtag narrative will be delicious. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm I don't like Twitter to begin with. But... <laughs> Which brings us to the most important question, Steve. 
uh, someone on our internal Slack today compared, talked about how great a heel turn it was. That's true. So what heel turn would you, would you compare Matt Harvey only pitching 180 innings to? Well, so I, I don't know who it was, and I apologize because I just kind of quickly skimmed over things before we started the podcast, but they compared the Flores face turn and the Harvey heel turn to uh, Austin Hart. That was a good one. 97. I enjoyed that one. Um, I'm going to go a, a little little esoteric here. I'm going to go take us back to the Great American Bash 1991, which is uh, generally considered to be the worst pay-per-view of all time. <laughs> I think there may be some other more recent contenders, but at least when I was still following it pretty closely on wrestling message boards and the like in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was always Great American Bash 91, which is very famous for the one where uh, Ric Flair held up the NWA and WCW right, right. and ended up leaving... Uh, for WWF and essentially vacating the world title, changing the main event from Flair as a heel against Lex Luger as a face to Lex Luger against Barry Windham, who was the number one contender on those like WCW top 10 lists that would run during uh, WCW Saturday night with really cool like early 90s synth music behind them. So in that event, which was terrible, uh, Flair uh, Luger turned heel which basically amounted to Harley Race running out, telling him now is the time, then Lex Luger pile-driving Barry Windham for the win. (laughs) That was the entirety of the heel turn. But during the entire event, uh, the fans were chanting, we want flair, knowing what had happened. I actually got this on pay-per-view. I spent, like, my birthday money to get this on pay-per-view, and it was awful. Um, But basically what what I'm comparing this to is, you know, the Mets fans chanting, we want flair, and getting a shitty Lex Luger heel turn from Matt Harvey. Because <laughs> Matt Harvey really should be Ric Flair. In a lot of ways, he is. But uh, in the end, we got shitty Lex Luger pile-driving Barry Windham in a boring steel cage match. Well, if, if there's one good thing that comes out of this, is that if they you know, pull the trigger and trade Matt Harvey... Like I mentioned in the old podcast that does not exist anymore, I will mention once again, Ari Dickey's a free agent, and we can sign Ari Dickey. And he won't uh, turn down the, the, the ability, the, the option to uh, pitch. He pitches through injury. He pitches through everything. And what will be the, uh, what will probably end up being anticlimactic? We're going to talk a little, bit, a little bit about the Brooklyn Cyclones now, Steve. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I saw them earlier this week in Norwich. Primarily to see Desmond Lindsay, their second-round pick from this year, who I know nothing about. I think as, as Alex and I sort of debriefed on our post-draft podcast, we really don't know what to expect from him. And since they decided to promote him for the last two weeks of a lost season, I'll go see him play. And it was kind of cool because I can go in with absolutely no expectations. Like, even when I see guys in the complex or short season, like, you know, Ali Sanchez, oh, he's a catcher that got a decent amount of money. I think Jeff Morse wrote some things about him. Or I go to Kingsport, I'm like, I'm really looking forward to Luis Carpio and, sorry, Luis Carpio, I got to get it right. And uh, and Rafael Ramirez. I know they got a little bit of money, but not a ton, but I kind of like the profile. I don't really know anything about him. 
then I end up running into a scout I know down there, and he's like, oh, yeah, and these, I've been on this team for a week. Those two are motherfuckers. I'm like, well, that's now coloring my vision of <laughs> what I'm going to see. But with Lindsay, you know, he, got, he didn't play much in the spring because of the hamstring issue. He's playing a completely new position. He was a third baseman in high school, first base in the showcase circuit, playing center field. 18-year-old against college arms. You know, anything could happen. But he looked really good. <laughs> he looked really good. Uh, the bat speed is obvious still. I mean, if you watch the one YouTube video of him taking batting practice, you already know this. But uh, he's got plus bat speed, nice level line drive sp- swing that kind of naturally goes opposite field. Uh, plus runner, maybe more. I don't know. He gave me a good home to first time, like off the bat, which like never happens. And he gave me a good solid six. It was it was like four two five. Uh, Alice Group had him at four two two and get a great first step out of the box. So yeah, round up. Call him a 60 runner. I don't know what else is there because uh, one time when he's on, I really want to see him going first. I love watching guys go first to third so I can see if they have that second gear. And like the next time he got on base, he got backpicked because he just like took a secondary lead like halfway to second base. <laughs> the baseball instincts aren't all the way there yet, maybe. Um, he also had like a weird charge on a potential play at the plate where he kind of didn't like come up throwing at all, which was just weird given the situation. Um, didn't really get tested in the outfield, but moved well laterally when he had to. Almost kind of glide, so I think he could maybe be a center fielder. Um, I guess the nicest thing I can say about him for a you know player surrounded by college dudes, he didn't look out of place at all, and he looked like the one guy in the field that would be a major league regular. Are you saying that there's no talent on that Cyclones team? <laughs> there's not much else. I mean, I. I <laughs> It's 14 innings. I was falling asleep during game two because uh, Jose yeah. Silas was taking like 20 seconds between every pitch. Um, but yeah, it didn't. I wasn't going there to see anybody else. Let's put it that way. Especially yeah, after, they, after Blake Taylor had Tommy John surgery and they shut down Andrew Church. Yeah. The two times when I saw them this year, I saw what's his face? Gabby Almonte twice. Mm-hmm. Not really much there. He just got promoted to Savannah, but they have so they're just like shuffling arms around at this point to yeah. get to the end of the season. Uh, Vinny Sin is a guy I like, just as a guy that I like, and not necessarily as a guy that might become something. His but, entire you know, extended Italian family was there, like going nuts oh, for everything he did. There's like twenty people. Of course, and I would expect no less. <laughs> we did play at UConn, so I'm sure they're in the. I think he's from Worcester or that general vicinity. Um, David David Thompson is a guy that you know intrigued me, but he hasn't really impressed or anything like that. I wasn't particularly impressed. Yeah, and that's really it. Hmm. So, I should say there's a lot more on this podcast. I didn't actually introduce it properly. Well, um, we're pressed for time. Here. We are. So it's an emergency. So you are going to hear uh, our own Chris McShane talking to Mark Carrig about the Mets. Hot August. This is recorded on Thursday night, so there's no actual Matt Harvey talk. But there's a lot of good stuff there. And after that, I'm going to talk to Joe Sheehan of Sports Illustrated about if the Mets are actually good. Because Joe's been uh, tweaking you guys on Twitter for a while, as he is wont to do. So we're going to we're going to dive in deep on that and what's happened to the Nationals and whether any of this matters once you get into the playoffs anyway. We'll probably talk about Matt Harvey because that's a thing that's happened. And then we'll come back and uh, answer your one email.
Joining us on the uh, episode here this week, he's been on before, you know his voice from WOR, uh, and you know his words from Newsday, he's been there uh, covering the Mets for, what is it, three seasons now, Mark? Yeah, I think so, and the 2012, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, Mark, Mark, yep. Mark, Mark three seasons, that's it. Yes. And Mark Mark Kareg, if uh, if you hadn't figured that out yet from the clues, so th- thanks for coming back on. That would be me. What's that? I said, all right. Thanks for coming back on. Think. What, wait, what? Thanks for coming back on the podcast. Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, we're off to a great start here, and uh, the 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 Mets. <laughs> The Mets are good. Uh, the, they are. The last time you were on was the end of June. Things didn't look anywhere near as good as they do now. Um, trades hadn't been made. Travis Darno hadn't come back, at least not in a long-term sense. David Wright hadn't come back. So, you know, you're you're around the team uh, as much as anyone. So what what is that room like right now? Is Juan Uribe as awesome as everybody says he is? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe more. Maybe more awesome than everyone says that he is. Like, uh, I I, I randomly had a conversation. Well, I guess not so random because there was some news value to it. But the other day, I go over to Eric Goodell's locker because Eric is one of these September call-ups where, as you know, the Mets could really use an extra arm down there in the bullpen. You know, maybe they catch someone who gets hot and they become that seventh-inning guy because they're pitching well. And so Eric's in that mix. So I go over to Eric, who hasn't been around for a while, as you know. You know, he's had the elbow injury. So um, you were talking about, you know, the prospects of him maybe making the postseason roster. And, you know, he looked pretty good his first time back. And he was laughing about how different the room was. Like, he said he couldn't even believe like, what it was when he left and what it was when he came back. He called it the Mets 2.0 <laughs> because he it, it just was stunned by, you know, and, and he wasn't trying to take a slight on what was there before, but, you know, he, he's sitting there in this row of lockers, a rebase nearby, and he's, you know, joking around. And, you know, you look around like even just the bullpen they left, and it was filled with guys that have, you know, pitched in the major leagues. Or, you know, even, like, you know, they're not – Instead of like pitching at the best, right? Like a guy like a Flaherty, for instance. It's still, you know, players value experience, you know. And and you look at that room, and there's a lot of experience right now. And you know, in the case of the Mets, a lot of those experienced pieces are actually productive pieces too. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. Mets 2.0 from Eric Goodell, because that's kind of what it's been. They've, they've had their extreme makeover. Um, that took place really over what turned out to be about three definitive weeks for them. So as they sat there and worried about, you know, went back and forth on whether to promote Conforto, and then as trade deadline week kind of unfolded, all the uh, plans they had and all the adjustments they had to make and all the adjustments they had to make to be adjusted. So um, at the end of the day, they ended up revamping their team, and uh, that's 2.0, it turns out, pretty good. Yeah, I like that, and I think, you know, I think it's uh, watching from from our perspective here. It's good to see these guys who aren't just, 
good in the clubhouse, but can play Major League Baseball. You know, I was looking today at the the numbers for the team over the last month for hitting, and uh, you know, two of the lower guys on the list are Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe, but they're still respectable. They're they're not that far off league average over the last month, and that's you know, when when those are the worst guys in the lineup, and they're still decently productive that's a big step up i think from where they were a couple months ago absolutely when you look at where they were a couple months ago all you have to do is look at the box score at triple a las vegas on just about any given night that's where they were a couple months ago and you realize you look at the first wave of september call-ups and i'm looking at that those names and i'm thinking my god this was you know Guys in, you know, hitting fifth, sixth, seventh, uh, you know, in the middle of June. And now they're here and, you know, they're, they're called up for September and they're really here just to, you know, play out the string when, when games get out of hand, basically, you know, to be used sparingly. So, just tells you what kind of depth they've accumulated when the September call-ups that were once playing every day are literally guys that are here just, you know, in case of a 14-8. You know, when you need to get someone in there to finish the game off. Or when you get some, you know, like a random stretch of game shit, maybe you guys get worn down and think you, you know, these September calls you kind of plug the holes with, well, those guys are playing every day, not too long ago. So, uh, it's amazing what happens when you accumulate depth and gotta give them credit. The Mets were creative with it. I think they were decisive with it. I think, uh, they evaluated talent real well, you know, as far as, like, you know, not just their own, but also, uh, you know, with what they acquired and also, you know, getting a sense for what other teams are interested in, in, in trying to acquire and making sure that those are pieces that they communicated to everybody they were willing to move. So, um, you know, they caught a lot of scrutiny, a lot of heat, but tough to complain right now. I think they made all the right moves, and certainly it's paying off. Yeah, and I think the moves that they made look better in context, you know, and obviously you wrote this week, uh, as we record here on Thursday night, it was, it was today, you wrote about <clears throat> the overwhelming odds that are in their favor going forward to make it to the postseason. And it's it's not just make it to the postseason, uh, but make it, you know, win the division and get into the NLDS. And I think the types of moves that they made where you have – some, you know, Michael Fulmer was a, a decent or very good prospect, uh, you know, depending on how, how who you asked. But, you know, you take guys like that and you make these moves and the moves are all for rentals in terms of what's guaranteed uh, other than Addison Reed. But, you know, these guys are here for the short term and you don't know what is beyond that. But when you're talking about the division, I think that's – that's a risk you're more willing to take. If you were doing that for a one game wild card spot, that you know, that might be sort of a different a different scenario. But I think part of it might just be gauging, you know, what what the nationals were. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, frankly I think it's gauging how long they could sort of withstand the losses that they took, you know, as far as health and personnel and, and whether they could it together. Yeah, this is sort of an underrated part of it, you know, or maybe overrated, depending on who you ask, but 
when, when that team was faltering and they clearly didn't have that much major league talent, it could have been a lot worse when you really look back at it, right? Like, just not just statistically, but even like just watching the games. People listening to this watched the game. I'm sure it felt like crap watching those games because, you know, you can only watch so much two to one, three to two, one to nothing, all right? Not fun. But, like, despite that shortage of talent, uh, they never let the heads get too far under the water. And I think that's on the manager, you know, for all of the things that you can rip him for with what happens on in-game decisions. And, and there's going to be plenty. There will be plenty more with Terry Collins. Uh, the fact of the matter is he kept that team together. You know, he and that coaching staff helped to keep that team together when there were plenty of opportunities for the whole thing to come apart. So the fact that they kept it together long enough and, you know, proved that they could at least hang around, pitching proved that it was for real, then I think, you know, not only are you gauging what the Nationals are when it comes to, to make a move, but you also need to be able to be realistic about what you are when you go out there and, and make moves. And I think within the organization, at least the sense that I got from talking to people uh, you know, within the net, is that you know, there was always a thought that the pitching was you know, going to be what it was. And, and they only confirmed that, but, well, I think they did a nice job of evaluating what they were. And once they had a sense of that, I think they realized that getting on average offense might be enough to get the job done. And so they exceeded that even, you know, simply because I think the market and all the things that happened steered them towards Cespedes. So that's a matter of, you know, being agile as a front office and also just some good luck, okay? Uh, and also, you know, not to be forgotten is that they've gotten some guys back. You know, Travis Darno, I would say, being the key guy there, and then then followed by David Wright. So you put all that stuff together, and and, and here you go. They, they've gotten themselves an above-average offense, in my opinion, to, to pair it with the pitching staff, which is what it is. And, you know, you give them big-time credit. They adjusted. Um, you know, they, they moved quickly. They acted decisively. And uh, you know, I think ended up with the exact right mix of guys to have in there because they've got a lot of different ways to beat you now, and you couldn't say that, certainly, before the trade deadline. Yeah, and the the rotation, uh, you know, there's kind of a nice segue into that. Um, you know, one of the things that came up the other day was the Matt Harvey innings thing, and everybody drew the conclusion that they were going to shut him down for the playoffs based on Terry Collins' quote. Uh you know, you had made the point. Yeah, which is crazy to me. I don't I don't even know how like sometimes I wonder what happened to reading comprehension. Honestly, like, come on, like all year long they've been saying the whole point of all of this is to avoid a playoff shutdown. And now that they're, you know, six and a half games ahead of the nationals and you know, in smooth sailing, like potentially to get in there, like why in the heck would he go in there and all of a sudden change you know, from what they've been saying all year long, right? Like, the whole point of this is to make sure that these guys don't have any shackles on them once the playoffs start. So I, I don't think they've changed, you know, their mindset there. And certainly, uh, you know, if you're a fan of the team, I would I would presume that you would much rather they have, you know, Matt skip something in September than 
you know, how to be a thing. But anyway, yeah, that, that was kind of weird. People did jump on that for some strange reason, but, you know, I guess it kind of surprised me. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, so, yeah, that, that was definitely a thing that happened. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, so going forward, obviously we know they – they might skip guys every now and again, especially if the if the lead were to get any larger or if they were to, you know, if, if we're so lucky, if they were to clinch with some time remaining in the regular season, those sort of things could lend to more, uh, you know, more spot starts, skipping guys, that kind of thing. But, but you know, Matt's is back. We're going to see him over the weekend. Um, and And, you know, Syndergaard gets skipped here, but how do you see that going? I know the whole six-man rotation thing has been sort of a, an ongoing question that changes frequently. <laughs> but do you think? Yeah. They... Well, I mean, the simplest thing is if they maintain the speed, if they can clinch early, then the more aggressive they go into innings shaving mode. So um, that really is what it boils down to now. I guess we'll start with Harvey. Um, I found it interesting, like that uh, this uh, innings limit all of a sudden ended up out in the realm there of 180. It's just you know I really hadn't heard that before, and I can say that everyone like I I don't recall you know in any setting anyone from the organization setting a hard number on Matt Harvey. So. You know, I know there was like a big old alarmist scare this week about, oh my God, he's at 160 or whatever he was going into his start, and here's the 180 mark, and the 180 is the mark. That's the number. Well, not exactly. Not at least according to folks I talk to in the organization, and it sounds like that's more of a soft cap with Harvey. And, and all indications are, you know, with, the, with him being skipped next time, you know, that was more of a preference than anything else. I don't think... They necessarily had to do that. I think it was something they preferred to do. Let's put it this way. If they weren't up, you know, by the margin they are tonight, then I don't think they move forward with skipping that. I think that was something they could or couldn't have done, and I think they're taking advantage, you know. I'm just looking at this, like, from my perspective, they're taking advantage of the fact that they've built themselves a cushion here, and certainly the Nationals. Have helped along in that. Helped along in that regard too. So, um, yeah, the bigger the lead, the more aggressive we get. That means maybe Jake Degrom is somebody to get that gets skipped, and that's something that Dan Watson mentioned to me the other day. Um, you know, another possibility is you know we all know that Noah Syndergaard is getting skipped once. If he gets skipped again, that's another potential thing they could be looking at here. If if things keep going the way they're going, and and they have enough leeway to sort of manage guys aggressively as far as innings. So now all of this becomes you know possible because A, they've obviously built themselves a nice little lead and B, when you have Logan Verrett and Steve Mack as the guys that are your alternatives to take starts, I think it makes it a lot easier to stomach. Sitting Noah Syndergaard, sitting Jake Crom, sitting Matt Harvey. So um, yeah, my view, I think it's pretty smart. I think it's being realistic about where they're at. And, you know, being realistic about the tools that they've got at their disposal. In this case, that's Matt and that's Barrett and Logan Brett. So, um, you know, seems to make sense to me. Um, but I will say things get a little bit tight and the Nationals catch fire or, you know, the Mets slow down a bit and all of a sudden 
that six and a half is two and a half or whatever it may be, all bets are off. <laughs> you know, I don't, yeah. I don't see them doing anything like radical or whatever. I think they just won the horses out there and win the division. You know, if, if they can. You know, so uh, as with everything this time of year, stay tuned because uh, my understanding is with all well, all of this as far as the pitching goes, it's all contingent on them being able to keep the Nationals at arm's length. So. It's not, you know, that series coming up here with Washington is a big deal anyway, but in this context, I think it's an even bigger deal because, you know, if you're, from the Mets' perspective, if, if you can, you know, pretty much drive the nail in the coffin over those three days, which is totally possible depending on how these next couple of days play out, then, you know, not, not only have you, you know, put yourself in, like, position to basically, you know, almost be fail-safe to win the division, right? You've also set your pitching up try to do something big when, when you do get there. So you know, clearly that would be the ideal scenario. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, the good thing I think about a head-to-head series from the Mets' perspective, and obviously they're playing the Marlins this weekend before they get to Washington, but I don't mind getting ahead of ourselves in that sense because the Nationals play the Braves, the Mets play the Marlins. You know, the, the mismatch is in favor of both of those teams, but you know, come Monday afternoon, they're playing each other. It's a three-game series. As long as they don't get swept, they guarantee that they, at worst, lose one game in the standings, and they've decreased the number of games that the, that are left to catch them by three. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not looking at it going, oh, I, you know, I, I hope they win one. You know, a sweep would be fantastic in the Mets' favor, but I, I don't know. It's just kind of... That that's the reality of it. That you know, they can, if they manage to just win one game, and you know, it's Nice, Harvey, and Degrom in that series. Uh, you know, they they could come out in better shape than they were probability wise when when the series started. Well, yeah. Hey, when you have this lead, time is on your side. You know, every every day that passes, that finish line gets closer. You know. It's, it's a luxury that they've earned, and frankly, the Nationals have squandered. You know, like, uh, I was, you know, I'm ultimately, like everybody else who's listening to this, you're a fan, you know? Like, I'm a fan of baseball. I, I root for compelling baseball. Like, you know, as a beat writer, you don't root for anything except for that, I would say. That and Marriott points, maybe, but like, <laughs> mostly you want compelling stuff. And, and, and frankly, from that perspective, I was hoping that this thing, you know, would have a little more drama to it. And, Man, watching what's happened in Washington, it just hasn't happened. Those guys have really, uh, you know, I think let an opportunity to slip away here to, to give the Mets a real battle for this thing. And meanwhile, again, to the Mets' credit, God, these guys, they haven't flinched. You know, they really haven't flinched. Like, uh, I've seen it all year with these guys where, um, you know, they get to a point, there's a, there's a juncture where, you know, one or two things goes wrong, this thing could turn in the, in the wrong direction for a little bit, and, you know, when those things happen, especially late in the year, it might be hard to get up from that. It might be hard to sort of change directions and get things back going the right way if, if you hit, like, a, you know, a speed bump. Well, these guys, God, they just don't seem to care if, if you know, they have a setback. They might get rolled one night like they did, you know, 14-8 or whatever it was, and, you know, bounce right back and, and, and take a game, and, uh, you know, they you know they had a setback in, in Pittsburgh, obviously, in those ball games. And, you know, certainly the week's schedule helps, okay, but, you know, this ain't the NFL. 
You know, like if this were the NFL, then I, I would look at that schedule and be a little more critical about it, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, you're not just in baseball, you're not just facing the team that's on the field across from you. You're also facing the grind of the season. You know, you're also facing, you know, and how you handle that grind of the season. So I, I think in that regard, you know, the Mets have, have shown that they're, they're capable of dealing with the sort of, you know, the grind and also, you know, that, that idea of just having to do what you got to do, take care of your own business. And they've beaten up on bad teams, on specifically, you know, some bad pitching. And, uh, you know, they deserve some credit for that too. Yeah, and I, in, in that sense, that point specifically, this isn't the Padres from a few years ago where we were looking at the NL West and it was going, it looked like it might be possible that the division winner would come out with a sub-500 record, you know, where just, just nobody in the division was even looking halfway decent. Um, you know, so that that is not the scenario here for the Mets, or, or the Nationals for that matter, who, you know, apparently it doesn't matter that they play a weak division <laughs> and, and are where they right. are. Um, yeah. Well, I just, you know, I think overall, maybe I'm wrong about this, but, like, you know, this is one of those differences in the sport. I, I don't understand, you know, putting that much weight into strength of schedule. Like, clearly it's a factor. So nobody's saying you ignore it. But, like, this isn't a 16-game NFL season where that stuff really, really matters, you know? Like, it's, this is a baseball season over a buck 62. And, you know, a bubble you over the Philadelphia Phillies shouldn't be diminished because you've beaten them a lot this year. You know? Not completely, anyway. So, right. Right. Um, no, I, I mean, I, the, the, you look at the winning percentage, that just doesn't happen. So, yeah, are the Mets better than the Phillies? Well, clearly they are. But, like, for teams to be that much better than another in Major League Baseball, mm, you know? So maybe it's a little bit of luck and variance and all that stuff. But maybe it's just the Mets taking care of their stuff, you know, I probably think it's a combination of the two, you know, so, but yeah. whatever it is, you know, they deserve some credit for that, and, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of attention paid to strength of schedule, and it's like, guys, it's baseball, not football, it's slightly different. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, um, that's definitely, that, that I think that sums it up, um, you know, the Phillies, are a pretty good candidate for the number one draft pick next year because they're, you know, terrible. <laughs> but they're not good. But that a team like that can still go on a stretch. I forget exactly what it was, but I, it, something like twenty-one and eight. The, the, you know, between the middle of July and the middle of August, something along those lines. And you know that mm-hmm. that terrible team can occasionally run off a stretch like that, and and they haven't done any of that against the Mets. Um, no. So, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, and again, the Mets are clearly the better team. Let's make no mistake about that. Nobody's saying that it doesn't matter what the strength of schedule is. I'm just saying, like, it shouldn't diminish, you know, this idea of just taking care of your own stuff. And, you know, and if you want proof of that, look what the Nationals have done, which has been the opposite of taking care of your own stuff. So, um, you know, that's, to me... If you're a serious baseball team, you know, try, uh, serious about trying to you know, win a division and make some noise in the playoffs, those are one of the signs you look for. Is this team 
you know, going to take advantage of the bad uh, opposition that they're going to come across in their schedule. And uh, there's no doubt that the Mets have done that. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, look, looking forward. We, uh, we're, we're very hopeful for the rest of the season as Mets fans, and we look forward to, you know, reading, reading the rest of your work over the course of the season and listening in the fourth inning uh, and on the broadcast. Yeah. It's been fun. It's been fun. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Explain to me why Mets fans are so obsessed with 2007. Ah. Because like, we can agree that these two teams don't even resemble each other. Right. That's what gets me about it, where it's like, it's it's not just <clears throat> the fact that it was eight years ago, which in and of itself to me should be enough to sort of differentiate <laughs> where, where we are. You know, that David Wright is the only person who even was there for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the only player who, who was there for that. And it, uh, yeah, I... I don't know. I mean, it's not surprising that, you know, that it's constantly come up from uh, certain quarters as the Mets have been good, that, you know, reminders that, oh, by the way, that happened, um, as, you know, as if people weren't aware. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> where, where were you? Where I, were you? Where yes. were you? Is uh, what what was going on in your life as that thing was unfolding on the field? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, no, I was. Uh, let's see, I was. I was within the first. I hadn't been. I've been with my my girlfriend now for for eight and a half years, and we were less than a year in. She was living in Queens, walking distance from Chase Stadium. Uh, I went to that last game of the season. Uh, with some people from work, and I actually got stuck in the Diamond Club for that miserable first inning. And like for a big game like that, <laughs> for a big game like that, the the last place I want to be is indoors. And like I'm itching to get get out, and I'm like, ah, oh, like can we just can we just leave? But I'm watching through plexiglass as the season crumbles, and it was just, oh. yeah, that was terrible. I mean, so I I get that I. I I felt that very very much that day at the at the stadium, but uh, but yeah, it's eight years later. I don't I I don't get it now. You know, I mean the the biggest thing that people have brought up in comparison is that the the, the guys who are pitching are so different from what that team had at the time. Um, mm-hmm. The guys that were rolling out there and everything, but. You know that I know the bullpen in 2015 over the last month. You know, and and after the Familia Clipper level, I, I I know that's been not great, but it, it was it was a mess in 2007. Right. Uh, so uh, the rotation, the bullpen. Uh, I guess I guess I can just sum that up as the pitching. The pitching is a whole different world. You know that that lineup was still good in 2007, but. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very different circumstance, and I think that Phillies team was better than this Nationals team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say it. It's it's fascinating because I wrote today, you know, just about you know, the fact that statistically, uh, right now, I mean, 
you know, I think there's a sports book that has a method one to ten to make the playoffs. One to ten. All right, and and I'm a big horse racing guy. That's what Secretariat went off at the Belmont. One to ten. All right, meaning like uh, it would take something catastrophic for this thing to not come together. And what blows my mind, all right, like seeing fans react on Twitter. And I guess this is why I asked like where you were, like your thoughts on that, because man, I just don't get it. You know, like I get it scarring, but like you know what, the Mets aren't the only team on the planet that's had something terrible happen to them. Right? Like, I mean, right. I was oh, an A's I... fan, and the Yankees were in the American League at the same time. Like, that sucked. All right? That sucked. So, like, I, I remember that. Okay? So I get it. I get it. But, like, God, that's ancient history. Right. And the teams aren't even alike. Right, so right. I, yeah, I, I don't, don't know. Like, I, you know, and then 08 was a little bit different, too. It felt like the Mets had a giant lead there, right? Like, they were in dogfight against a good team. So that even has like a different feel to it. Like, I guess we're going to get into comparing collapses. I mean, 07 was pretty darn awful, but it's also a long time ago. <laughs> right. And yeah, I, you know, I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm curious because I, I'm not, a, I'm ex, you know, I'm not exposed to it. Uh, you know, sort of these other worlds of, of fandom, but you know, when the, when the Red Sox were going very well in 2013, did their, collapse come up, you know, because that was really bad, the one that had happened between their second and third World Series titles. I forget which year it was, whether it was... Yeah. It might have, it yeah, might have been I, the year before. It might have been 2012. Good but, question. But they, they had yeah. one. The Braves blew one. The Tigers have, have sputtered down the stretch several times, you know, over the years. When when Game 163 happened with the Twins... Mm-hmm. The, the Twins did well on their own, but that should have never happened. Right. Right. And that's it. You make a great point. I mean, like, it's, for whatever reason, this fan base, like, obsesses over that, you know, that collapse. And, and, and it acts as if, like, it's the only one that's ever happened in the history of baseball. You know? Yeah. And, and certainly it's going to hurt more because it's your team. And I'm not diminishing that at all. Like, that sucks. You know, right? Like, I mean, certainly... Well, I was a journalist, I was a fan, and, all right, like, I, I take, you know, who's not my wife to go see Moneyball, and she's a Yankee fan, and, you know, like, there's, uh, you know, clips, to, you know, sound clips of what happened in those playoff series, and, you know, uh, you know, she's laughing in my face, and I didn't think it was very funny, all right, <laughs> like, so I get it, like, I get it, okay, like, it, that's why we love this, right, like, it's fun, and, and you feel these things, but like, God, at the same time, like, it's almost like that 07 collapse in particular took on a life of its own. And, you know, it, it's coming up flat again this year, and, you know, it's just, it baffles me. It really does, because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm... like the lead giant, and I guess, like, you know, that's that's what's in common. But, man, it, like you are saying earlier, it's not like these teams, like, look anything like. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. If I'm trying to figure it out, I guess... I guess it was it, it, the reason why it's still such a it's in the front of everyone's minds. I, maybe it's the combination of 2006 felt like like that was it was so close, and it, it felt like that that was the championship team. It was going to happen, you know. Andy Chavez makes the catch, and then we all know how the series ends. Um, but maybe it's the combination of that. And then the excitement of going into the next year, 
and saying, all right, well, they got that close, but, but this is our year. You know, they're going to get back. They're going to do better. And then it just crumbled so much at the end. So I'm, I'm, I'm speculating because I, I don't care about 2007 right now. You know, the, to me, right really, now, not at all. Well, for real, not even a little bit. Like, I, I mean, because I'm not saying that I don't understand it. I just don't understand like the level of it. But like, right? I, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think. If I'm a Mets fan, okay, and all I can do is go back to my frame of reference. All right, like when I was like an A's fan growing up. All right, like, hey, I, those things stuck with me. Like, I didn't understand the Minnesota freaking Twins knocked them out of the playoffs. I just didn't get it. You know, I didn't understand how they blew. <laughs> A lead against the Yankees, you know, like and now that famous story of you know Jeter and Eric Chavez and, and listening to Chavez on the scoreboard say it's the A's time, and then you know we then bingo, you know, uh, the A's are done. So like I, you know, like I, I I get it, okay, but like I also don't understand like how could you not care, <laughs> you know. Like there is there like a little bit of you that remembers that stuff and like thinks that you know mm, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I mean, you I, you care about all of it that you've experienced. So it's not that it was nothing, but right now it's nothing to me. Right now, that's not. Right now, the Mets are good. It's been a long time. You know, they they have an opportunity to bury the Nationals. Uh, you know, Cespedes is a joy to watch. Harvey Degrom, Syndergaard, Mats are a ridiculous talent for four pitchers on the same team at the same time. Like that's that's the focus. So it's not that that stuff isn't there, but I I still look. I don't know. I I'm uh, maybe I'm just weird with this stuff. I think of 2006 fondly now, even though it ended in the NLCS in Game Seven, because um, that was you know. And I'm not trying to write off the playoffs, but that regular season was fun. That was the I graduated mm-hmm. I graduated college. You know, I went from a college student budget to a entry level salary budget that <laughs> wasn't you know not nothing spectacular but enough mm-hmm. enough to go to a bunch of games in the cheap seats at Shea and and just enjoy the hell out of that summer so for me it you know it's partially the timing of it all where i you know i'd been to Mets games over all the years but i really went to games that year so it was yeah so like i still think of that in a good way and i i try to appreciate and and that you know it comes up sometimes, and I think maybe I've been conditioned to this between the Mets and the and more recently in hockey the Rangers, but these teams that have put together very good regular seasons and had them end shy of championships. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'm just conditioned to it. But well, well, I will say I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. That OC team, you know, like whatever happened at the end, like whatever. Like the point is, were they fun to watch? Oh yeah, well, but they were right. They were mem- Were they memorable? Yeah. Oh, I, there. I mean, I several games that still stand out that are that were just, you know, right. And okay. right, like baseball, were... baseball regular season games. There are so many of them, and if you have several mm-hmm. from the same season that you can vividly remember, the sort of where you were, or exactly what happened, you know that that's. Uh, that's saying something, and there were there were yeah. many, there were many moments like that in that season. Well, guess what? These guys have that same entertainment value to their credit for all the stuff that's happened here the last couple of years, and even what it was just at the start of this 
ultimately, right now, it's September. The Mets are in the lead. And not only are they playing good baseball, but it's entertaining baseball. Right? Like, the product is good. So, to me, right, like, if you're a fan, is there, what more could you ask for? You know? Like, what more can you ask for than to have a product that's entertaining? And to their credit right now, the Mets are entertaining. And they're memorable. You know? This group, this mix of guys, Sestinus, pitching, you know, so on and so forth, like, they're a memorable team. And, hey, isn't that all you can ask for, ultimately, is to have a good product to watch and tune into every day. And, again, credit to those guys and people in the organization. They've built that good product for people. And, you know, they just, why bother with what happened in the past? Why not just enjoy what's going on now? Because, you know, there are not very many products in baseball that are more fun to watch right now than this one. You know? Yeah, I know. I, I, I agree. I mean, this is, it's as good a time to be a fan as it was since the 06, 7, 8 teams in those regular seasons. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I get the, uh, I get a, a, the, any hesitation in, in sports. So, all right, we'll let, let them make it first. I, I understand that general reaction, but, you know, the only guy who's really faltered a little bit lately has been Syndergaard, and it's not like he's been terrible. Um, you know, he's, he, he, no. hasn't, he hasn't quite lived up to his performance from the first few months in the big leagues, but, you know, Harvey and DeGrom – uh, you know, Harvey had the hiccup against the Phillies there, but generally speaking, Harvey and DeGrom over the last six to eight weeks have just been outstanding, you know, so I, I'd get it a little bit more, uh, the fear of collapse, I would I would get it a little bit more if Harvey had been bad for a month, or DeGrom had been bad for a month, or, you know, if Harvey, DeGrom, and Syndergaard had been bad for like their last three starts each, but that just, it hasn't happened, you know, and... and it, that's what has me feeling very good, I guess. Yeah, you know, like, I don't know, man, like, I, it, it just strikes me as weird that, like, I, I see so many people fighting about it, and obviously you want your team to be good, okay? Like, nobody is going to blame a fan for that. Like, they should want their team to be good. They should care about whether they're good or not. They should be paying close attention if they're really, you know, entertained by this. But, like, you know, ultimately, like, God, isn't there something the fact that, hey, you guys are good again? Shouldn't there be, like, an enjoyment factor? Like, what blows my mind is how many questions I get about Cespedes being extended. Well, we all know he's not going to get extended here, and there's lots of reasons for that. But the point is, the chances of him coming back, they're very, very, very slim. All right? And I think the Mets knew that when they went and made a deal anyway. So wouldn't it just make more sense to, like, just enjoy the fact that he's here now? And not only is he here now, but now the time where, like, he's having just about as much of an impact as he possibly can someone that walked through the door relatively recently. So, yeah, I don't uh, know. Like, yeah, yeah, he's had, I mean, this has been as good as he's ever played in the majors. Uh, pretty much, yeah. He's been incredible and exactly what they ended up needing, you know? So, I mean, absolutely incredible. Like, you know, I think if you look at his production level right now, like, I mean, you could put together a list of, like, you know, trade deadline acquisitions that uh, ended up making a giant difference, and I think his name's up there. You know, it actually reminds me of, like, you know, what Manny did with the Dodgers in 08. You know, that sort of thing, where, like, you know, a guy shows up somewhere else, and all of a sudden, you know, like, makes this enormous impact. And, you know, 
Like the Mets have been on the receiving end of one of those. And hey, you know, whether it goes into next year or not, what's it matter right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. If then, I'd imagine he'd just be jumping up and down for what's going on right now, which has been pretty good. Yeah, and Suspedes, I was looking at him a little bit today, and uh, his time with the Mets, uh, if you, you know, if you extrapolate a little bit, his home run pace over 600 plate appearances or 650, whatever, you know, if you took it with the Mets and stretched it out over a normal full season, you know, he's been on a 47 home run pace in his time with mm-hmm. the Mets. Uh in 2015 and yeah you know one series was in Coors Field so you, you take that into account but still uh even even if you knock him down a little bit for that the, that sort of home run pace is elite in 2015 not not just mm-hmm. like pretty good it's really good mm-hmm. so yep and he's in a Met uniform playing games of count so everybody chill <laughs> it's gonna be okay have some fun with it, Mets fans. It's there, all there, right. There we go. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, we could probably keep going for a while, but I'll uh, I'll wrap it up. Hey, we, we've got Jeff coming back on, following our segment here. So yeah, we better wrap it up. The wife's giving me the side eye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations officially. Uh, and and we've we've heard. We've heard there's another beat reporter getting married in season, but we won't we won't blow him up on that. We'll just let people try. Yeah, to, yeah. We'll, we'll let yeah, them yeah they'll, they'll figure that out. They'll yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Everybody's <laughs> favorite contrarian. There's a hint. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks as always, and and uh, enjoy the rest of the season from from your view in the press box, and uh, and hopefully there's a couple months left. Right on. See y'all at pitch talks. Oh yes, yes. Uh, Jeff is probably going to plug it later, but we'll, pl- we'll plug it right well, here. Listen to Jeff. Right here, whatever middle. Jeff says. Yes, it's the seventeenth. I, I got the date wrong the last time we tried to plug this on the podcast. Oh, unbelievable! Well, but let's I, get it right this time. September seventeenth in Astoria, Catch Brewery. I think. There you yeah. go. That's yeah. it. And uh, yeah, we we recommend it. Mark Mark will be there. Anthony Tacoma will be there. We'll be doing a live podcast with Jeff Gregg, Toby Hyde, and Maggie Wigan uh, from Mets Minor League Blog and Mets Blog, respectively. So, and then we'll be having some beers. So come on out. And Mark, uh, thanks again. Thank you. Joining the podcast now, he is a writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. It's Joe Sheehan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jeffrey. Good to be on, man. So we'll get right into it. You've been uh, annoying people on Mets Twitter recently by implying that the Mets are not a very good baseball team. Um, as we record this, they're 15 games over 500, five games up on the Nationals, on pace for over 90 wins this season. So are the Mets a good baseball team, and does it even matter at this point? I'll do this. The, the second part first. No, it doesn't. The rules say that if you finish at the top of your small division, your five-team division, you get to go to the playoffs. So what Joe Sheehan thinks about the quality of your team isn't terribly important. 
I'm writing about the quality team, and I want to make a point. You know, you said I don't think they're a very good team. I'm going with the same thing I've said about the Mets all year. Start of the year, I said they were a 500-ish team. I think I had them 82 and 80, 81 and 81, something in that range. I thought they'd be the second best team in the division behind, you know, 80 games behind the Nationals, and uh, thought they'd be at the back end of that wild card pack. And that hasn't happened. They've been a little bit better than that. Um, and then, of course, you know, they did pick up Cespedes at the deadline, which has helped them significantly. But I think the, the, the differences for the Mets are they've beaten the heck out of some very bad teams. And I don't have the numbers in front of me. I believe they were up at one point, they were 32 and 5 against the Marlins, Phillies, and Rockies, and under 500 against you know, everybody else in baseball. Uh, and the other thing is that, you know, the Nationals are really, to me, the story in the division. The Mets are going to end up. You know, you factor in the schedule, the Mets are going to end up not that far from where they were expected to be. The Nationals are going to end up 20 games worse than where anybody expected them to be. So, you know, those to me, that the Mets are a 500-ish team playing in an abysmal schedule, in, a, in the, maybe the worst division we've seen since realignment. Um, and, you know, that's, they, they got a little bit better in season. So, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, the the eight, 73 Mets were 82 and 79 and made the playoffs. The uh, there was a year the Cardinals were honestly 83 and 78. Yeah, there was the a year that the Padres well. were 82 and 80. Yeah, the the 2006 Cardinals who they play in the playoffs? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. I can, I can hear they people also had throwing. About, to be fair, they had about as many injuries in season as the Nationals did. They just happened to play yeah. in a worse division. Yeah, and that's that's the nature of the game now. So, but I do think I mean, one of the the bigger disagreement I think that's popped up on Twitter lately is uh, how good are the Mets right now? And I think that's an interesting conversation to have because you know there was one person who kept throwing the July twenty fifth date at me. I guess that was the date that the Johnson and Uribe joined the team. Johnson and Uribe haven't played particularly well for the Mets. Uh, Tyler Clippard, he's you know he's been just another reliever. I mean he's an upgrade maybe on what they had in the eighth inning. Um, Cespedes has gone nuts. Cespedes has gone absolutely nuts. I'm reasonably sure Yoenis Cespedes isn't a 950 OPS hitter, but he's played well. But in August, the Mets beat the crap out of the Marlins, Phillies, and Rockies. They were, I think it was 14 and 0. They scored eight and a half runs a game, and in the rest of their games, they were five and eight. And they went, uh, what was it? They scored three and a half runs a game. And I'm rounding off here. I apologize. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. Um, and that to me is the real question. Are the and there's this all this talk right now? Oh, the Mets' offense has been completely rebuilt and right and Darno and Cespedes. But when you actually look at the performances, what you see is a team that's beaten the living crap out of what, frankly, are expansion teams at this point. Those three teams, and they've really not been you know that good against the five competitive teams that they've played. So that that that's the crux of the disagreement. Um, you know, how good are the Mets right now? And people are pointing to the numbers over the last five weeks, and I'm saying, well, look at how those numbers were compiled. Uh, how good are the Mets right now? I think right now, if you if it was March 31st and the Mets had this particular roster, I'd say they were probably an 85-win team, 85-86 win team. I think there is still you know the, the bullpen. I don't have complete confidence in. I don't think it's a very good defensive team uh, outside of obviously having the great uh, Juan Lagares out there, uh, and obviously there's a, a ton of health issues, including you know how how many, how many innings you're going to get out of that rotation. Uh, I think it's an incredibly exciting team. I was there. What was it? August second, the night uh, the night they hit the back to back home runs. It was it was a Sunday night baseball game where yeah, they beat the Nationals. Too, yeah. Oh my God, that was uh, that was as excited as I've seen a Mets crowd in that building. It was just a great great night to be at that ballpark. And you know that part of the story I think is fantastic. You know, it was a couple nights after the Flores story and the near trade, and uh, it was you know, Cespedes just around the lineup, and all of these things are really cool. I'm more kind of getting at the you know what are what are the Mets and. I think underlying that is 
does the fact that the Mets are going to win the weakest division ever kind of move us away? You know, almost is it going to act as absolution for the horrific way in which they're being run right now? So I guess we'll jump to that next. Um, I've mentioned before on the podcast, if you want to be cynical about it, and as Mets fans, you're probably inclined to be, that great trade deadline, they didn't take any money on past October 1st or October 4th, whatever the last day of the season is. They kiboshed a, a Carlos Gomez deal that, on paper at least at the time, maybe made a little more sense, given the relative strengths and weaknesses of the team, than trading for Juanes Suspedes because of medical issues that may or may not have existed. Now, spoiler alert, also a Scott Boris client, which may uh, get uh, be a factor in something we'll discuss in a little bit, but also a, a deal that would have taken on more money past this season. So you get into sort of the, the flags fly forever discussion. If they even get to, let's say, the World Series and not even win it, for a team that, for a fan base that's been starved for a good team, if they just come back in 2016 with the same sort of lip service in the off season to about payroll flexibility. And we have, we can add a big name and they add whatever the Michael Kadire equivalent is, or even Curtis Granderson. Is that a, is that a win for the franchise for the fans? No. I, and I, well, if, if they win a championship this year, it, 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 nobody's going to care, but if they don't, I, I think you've got the same situation. Um, we were talking off the air. You mentioned you thought they'd be around a bit under a hundred million dollar payroll heading into the off season with the various additions and subtractions and uh, you know projecting out arbitration. Uh, they were one hundred five, one ten, something like that this year. They not only did they not take any on any money for the future, they really didn't raise the payroll this year. So you know it's not like you know, see all what all the other teams in baseball did picking up money. The Dodgers spent the equivalent of a small uh, nation's GDP to make trades at the at the deadline, and the Mets aren't behaving in that way. And The Royals took on a ton of money. The Royals took on money. I mean, this, is, this is where we're at right now, and I understand, you know, you can win on a $110 million payroll, but it, you doing that, if you're a team in New York, in a relatively new park, with your own RSN, if you're tying a hand behind your back, clearly that there's a problem there. The relative to market... The Mets are probably spending as little as almost any team in baseball right now, relative to what you would expect a payroll to be, and that's the difference. That's why you know we talk about needing to, to patch the bullpen, and that's why you end up functionally trading a first-round draft pick for Michael Kadire because that's the guy you think you can get. Uh, I know Curtis Grandison's had a good year. I still think that was in the, that was that same type of deal where it's this is the guy we think we can get for the money we have to spend. And I mean, Grandison's a, a nice enough player. He's having a better year this year than he did this year, last year. But you know, the Mets have really kind of needed that that second or third hitter in the lineup, and that, they haven't gone out and gotten it. So, you know, I'd said this winter, I thought Scherzer would have been a great fit because you had all of these pitchers who were going to have to be innings managed. And with Scherzer, you could have just dropped a guy in the number one spot and said, "Go get, go give us 225 innings." Uh, and that even I think going into next year, the Mets still might need that type of guy. And Lord knows there's going to be a, pl- a bunch of them out there. Um, if they, the difference between where they are right now as a pay, as a payroll and where they are where they reasonably should be is basically one top of market 25, 30 million dollar free agent, and that's the guy they haven't shown any willingness to go out and get, largely because of non-baseball issues. So I know I don't think you necessarily advocate giving this player that sort of money, but they could maybe quell a lot of these concerns. I know his contract's a little weird in in that respect, so it's not a great fit. But 
as you said, Ioannis Espedes has gone off for this team. Now, is he going to be able to sustain that going forward? I don't know, but he's one of the few premier bats on the market this upcoming offseason. I mean, Ben Zobris is great, but he's not a guy that gets paid a ton. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with Justin Upton and, Upton and Jason Hayward. If they went out and offered Cespedes something like six years, $150 million, that would at least, even if maybe it's an overpay, would at least quell some of these concerns now. It's a massive overpay. I mean, if you want to go do that, for sure, I guess. I, I, if I'm going to go spend six and one fifty, I'd try to go get Jordan Zimmerman or something. I, I guess we're seeing. I think there's an excitement about Cespedes because he had that one great night in this park a couple of years ago with the home run derby. Now he's shown up and he's hit you know three fifty six hundred for for five weeks. He's not that guy. He's twenty nine, and I've got fifteen hundred plate appearances that tell me he's a three twenty four eighty type of hitter. He's a good player. Not a great one. He's about to turn 30. He's not a center fielder. And even if he were, he wouldn't be on this team because of the presence of Lagares. If you sign him, okay, let's say you sign him for 6 and 150, just to use your numbers. Now you're paying Kadir 22 million or whatever. It's some huge backloaded number next year. 22, maybe? I don't know. I think it was, it was 22 total. It was 9 and 13, I think, Thank or you. 8, so 8 and 13 and a half, something like that. Thank you. So it's 13 and a half. Granderson, I think he was just 4 and 15, so that's 28 and change. Ligaris, whatever he makes, plus Cespedes at 25. You're paying $63 million to four outfielders on a team that's somewhat budget limited. I, I don't think that's a real good use of resources. Yes, would it be a statement? Yes, we're willing to spend money. Yes, I would get guys like me probably to shut up, but I don't think that's the best way to go about doing that. If you want to do that, go sign a number one starter. And there'll be plenty of those available, and I've suggested on the podcast, <laughs> especially if it ends up them, them trading Matt Harvey this offseason, which might uh, come to a head at some point. Is there even a guy that maybe falls through the cracks? Because, you know, David Price is probably going to be the the $200 million guy on this in this free agent class of arms, if there's any. But is there a guy, is there a James Shields that maybe is more of a 4 and 80 that might fit more in the Mets price range? Uh, you figure Price, Granky, Cueto, Zimmerman, there's somebody in that class, like at the, in that group, that second group of names I'm forgetting. But uh, Price, Price, Granky, Cueto, Zimmerman, name I'm forgetting. And then you drop down, and I got to think about, uh, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Uh, Gallardo will be a free agent. Gallardo actually, the problem is the strikeout rates plummeted the last couple of years. I'm not sure I want to give him three to four years. If you really want to do this, maybe you trade for, if you can get the Padres to just do a salary dump and take, Three and sixty-four, whatever it is, left on Shields' deal with that heavily backloaded deal. At least then you're getting the innings guy, even if you're not getting the number one type of performance. I think Shields probably has a couple years left as a two hundred inning, three point five, three point six ERA guy. If you just want to fill the innings, I'd rather do that than make a six-year commitment at those same dollars to you know the seventh best guy on this market. I think it's going to be a crazy market for pitching. I think when you look at where the top of the market's going to go. It's really hard to project free agency each year because each year revenues grow in a way that almost invalidates the previous year. We can't use the previous year for model because there's so much money in the game. Um, so and a lot of it's going to these top tier free agents. So it's tough if you're if you're a team like the Mets that might want to get involved but doesn't want to get involved at top of market. It's really the place where you can make some awkward deals where you end up paying, you know. You end up paying 90% of the dollars for 70% of the player. That player might be Doug Fister or Matt Latos. 
No, well, at that point, you're you're yeah. Those those guys. I mean, especially the years they're coming off of. You're talking about you know two and twenty five, and you know those are brought to. I mean, maybe not as cheap as they got Carl Cologne, but those types of deals. And the other thing is, I mean, the Mets have volume. I mean, if they trade Harvey, obviously that changes. Trading Harvey, you know, just because you brought it up, um, that's interesting, just in the sense that that could bring them the bat that they've been needing. I just don't know where that bat would play. Like I'm looking at next year's team and saying, okay, who am I moving aside? If I've got to pay Michael Kadire thirteen and a half million dollars, I've got to roster him. I can't see them eating that. That would be ten percent of their payroll, twelve percent of their payroll. I can't see them eating that. So if you bring in an outfielder, where what are you doing with Kadire? Is he just going to platoon with Duda and be a thirteen point five million dollar right-handed half of a platoon? Um, he, I'm sorry. He, he, he might have, have, he might I, have I, to I be that anyway. <laughs> roster baiting is like. One of my favorite things in the world. I just I could do this with all thirty teams for hours on end, and I get I get into start thinking. And it's it's August, we September. We should be thinking about the pennant races, and immediately I just start thinking about you know Cots baseball contracts, and I can see those little grids in my head. Uh, so let's talk about the pennant race and a team that's uh, you never want to tempt fate, but on the periphery of it right now, and that is the Washington Nationals. Uh, they're five out. They are five games over five hundred. They were, after they added Max Scherzer, you know, the famous Bryce Harper quote, where's my ring? And obviously games aren't played on paper, and they had a ton of injuries this year. What exactly happened? No, you pretty much got it. Uh, I don't want to say it was just the injuries. I mean, was there, and this happened sort of in 2013 too, with a very similar team, but you thought maybe they had a little more like I said over and over on the podcast, even when they were struggling, you just felt like they were going to have a stretch where they ran off 13 of 15, and then that would be that. And it never, I mean, they had that early on to sort of get back in it, but then just never continue to put the Mets in their rearview mirror after that. I think one of the things we saw was the importance of Denard Span to this team. I know there were stats floating around about their record with him and without him, but there, there was a lack of balance with this team that Span helped to correct. He was one of the few left-handed hitters in the lineup. He was the only real leadoff option they had. I mean, they've been using Jason Wirth in that spot. Jason Wirth's having you know, really one of the worst years of his career. Um, so I think losing Span had an effect on the offense beyond maybe what we would project just through looking at his war and things like that. He's a really critical guy to this team. Uh, but then you have you know the three right-handed hitters in the middle of the lineup. I remember looking up during that uh, that game, that Sunday night game, and it, they were hitting four, five, six worth Zimmerman Espinoza, and it was like two hundred five, one ninety eight, two ten or something. And it was like that's that's your season right there. Did I say Espinoza? I meant Desmond. Um, that's that's your season right there. That's those three guys combining for what's it been now? Maybe three or four wins over replacement when you expected to get twelve out of them. And so you put you put the injuries and all those guys were injured to one extent or another. Actually, Desmond, what Desmond's been healthy, but both Zimmerman and Worth have been hurt, um, and then not performing when they played, and that's it. I mean, that's that's kind of the ball. And you, it, it kind of teaches me. I mean, I had them. I think I projected them to ninety eight wins, maybe ninety seven. Um, but I thought they had a chance. Like they had the upside of a hundred and five win team. I made a whole big speech in February when they signed Scherzer about, oh, it's great to see a team trying to be great. Uh, I didn't see this coming, and I think it's it's an indication of just how thin the line can be. Sometimes we talk about you know one player is only going to be worth six wins. You know your MVPs will be worth eight or nine in a given season. Uh, but when you have a couple of guys go down, all of a sudden ninety five wins starts to look a long, long way away. 
So what happens next if this team misses the playoffs? Obviously, Matt Williams hasn't covered himself in glory this year, managing down the stretch in terms of bullpen usage and other things. He's gotten sort of the, you know, Matt Williams is my manager speech from Mike Rizzo, who's put together these teams that have, you know, they've spent a fair amount of money in the free agent market and elsewhere um, to put these teams together. Do you think there's any scenario where one or both loses their jobs? I would be surprised if Rizzo lost his job. I think Rizzo gets one more year. Uh, I think Matt Williams has to go. Leave aside the stuff that the stat heads get crazy about. Uh, the, the bullpen usage and the, the intentional walks and things like that. And just just look at the performance of the players. So if you want to argue that you know the, the, the pushing buttons and pulling lever stuff isn't as important as some of us, I do mean me, make it sound, that's fine. But, okay, then talk about the interpersonal stuff. What has Matt Williams done to make any of this better? What has Matt Williams done to somehow get these players? He, he's presided over the collapse. Like, Ian Desmond is 29, and he's gone from being a guy we were talking about getting big money in free agency to being one of the worst players in the league. Uh, you know, Zimmerman's, Ryan Zimmerman's 30, and I know some of it's injuries, but it's not like when he plays he's been all that good. Uh, Wilson Ramos. We were all excited about Wilson Ramos. They got him for Matt Capps. And it looked like he was going to go out, and, he, and he's completely stagnated as a player. What exactly is Matt Williams doing? Players are, are stagnating. He's not a good tactical guy. You know, he's had he had a run in with Bryce Harper, and Bryce Harper is considerably more important to the franchise than Matt Williams is. Uh, he obviously isn't getting the best, most out of Steven Strasburg. Ibid. I. Why are you keeping Matt? Williams? I would have fired. I hate firing managers mid, mid season. I would have fired Matt Williams six weeks ago just because. This is too important a season. We have one more year with Harper and Strasburg, and I, we're wasting this year. You know, we shut down. Speaking as the Nationals, that we shut did this whole thing. We're going to shut down Steven Strasburg because we're going to have plenty of opportunities to win a championship. You haven't won a playoff series yet. At some point, you, you kind of got to look at the manager and say, maybe you're part of that. Yeah, and uh, do you think they sign Bryce Harper long term? Obviously, they have the money to do it. Um, I mean. He seems like the type that will go to take it year by year and go to free agency. Um, I mean, I was a little shocked that, that Trout signed an extension, but I think he still hits the market again at like 28 and something ridiculous or whatever it is with $180 million in his pocket. But could Harper, is he the kind of guy that's going to, I don't want to say like leave to the, for the Yankees because that's sort of like the most cliche thing you can say about a player. But is he, the, is he a guy that's going to be a long-term fit in Washington? And if... You know, if they're looking at possibly only having one more year with Strasburg, do they maybe look to see what they can get on the market for these guys if they don't think they can sign them long-term? I mean, they didn't do it with Zimmerman. They're going to give them the qualifying offer and take the pick, but I think this, we're talking about a slightly different class of player here. Well, I, I, you're going to probably lose Zimmerman, and you might not. If you sign Zimmerman, this is a different conversation, but if you lose Zimmerman, I don't know if you can go out and trade Strasburg next year because now you're bringing back... Uh, Scherzer, Gio, Joe Ross, eventually Lucas Giolito. I think you still got to put a team on the field next year. I think you still got to try to win with this roster. Worth isn't going anywhere. Um, he just Zimmerman's not going. I mean, you've got a lot of guys you can't trade. And not like the NL East looks like it's going to be great next year either. <laughs> you know, uh, if you can get to 85 wins, you think you got to consider yourself a contender. So, uh, no, I think that you're trying to win next year, and if it doesn't work out, you know, you just if it, in July it's not working out, you can hopefully. The other thing is these guys are not trade value. I mean, how much trade value does Steven Strasburg have right now? No, it's a reasonable question. 
So I, I think they're committed to doing it this year. I think they'll they'll take a look at the market. Um, they've you know get either gets hopefully Span gets healthy and is the leadoff hitter they need because they're just so incredibly right-handed right now, uh, and they just they, they have some serious on-base issues. So I think they'll have to address those things. I think they would do it under a different manager, uh, but I think Rizzo gets one more year to see through effectively the plan that what are we. Three years, three months, three years away, three years since the Strasburg shutdown. I think that you know whatever hand the player and the agent had as part of it, it was in the end Rizzo and the organization's decision to do that. It was. It's not a word I like to use because you know glass houses, but it was an incredibly arrogant thing to do. And when you haven't won a playoff series since you did it, it it kind of is the kind of thing people are going to remember your your job for. So we'll see how that uh, how that plays out. But I, I think they they. They go into next year trying to contend. Uh, I haven't looked at their payroll situation, but i got to assume that they'll try to spend some money this winter as well. Well, that is a wonderful transition into a topic uh, very similar that the Mets are dealing with right now with a, a very similar agent and a very similar shutdown. Of course, I like to tee up the host like that. that was very nice of you. Um, so you, I guess, could be described as a person that is generally pro-labor when it comes to things like this. Yes. What is your take on the the Matt Harvey potential shutdown, just the whole situation around what's going on with his the status, the status of his arm, I guess, would be the best way to put it? I think everybody is attempting to act in their best interests, which is the way it has to work. I think that for the most part, we're all guessing, and that's the frustrating part of this. Uh, whatever private conversations were held among doctors and agents and players and teams, I wasn't privy to them. I don't know who's saying what. I don't know what they said then, what they're saying now. We're all just guessing. We figured out that it's probably bad for pitchers to throw 400 innings in a year. We figured out that it's bad for young pitchers to throw 250 innings in a year. Um, beyond that... We're really guessing when it comes to the condition of the elbow, and I think the the idea that there's a magic number, whether it's 120, 140, 160, 180, I, I, I don't see it. And, and I think that if there was that magic number, I think if that number existed, we'd, we'd have heard about it by now. And I think that if anybody gave anybody a number, it was their best guess based on their expertise, but there is simply no way to know, no way that anybody can believe – that the 175th inning is going to be fine and the 185th inning is going to incur risk. There's just no for, – for one thing, inning is a baseball context. It's, it's not a stress level on the elbow context. So you know, there, there's that problem initially to begin with, but there's a thousand reasons why I don't think that hanging this on a number is, uh, is a good idea. And I also believe in – I think that we've stopped abusing pitchers as an industry. If you look at the way pitchers were treated 30, 20, even 15 years ago, we've stopped doing that. And I think we all need to have that this conversation in that context. And I think we also need to recognize that the purpose of the baseball industry – the purpose of baseball teams is to make money. The secondary purpose, the reason that people show up at the ballpark and buy the gear and listen to podcasts like this is to win. And this is a situation where – you know the, the needs of the organization, I'm not saying you can't balance them against the needs of the player, but you know you play to win the game. I mean, you're trying to win championships, and this is an opportunity. You, know, you talk about it with Strasburg. I mean, if you, if you shut Matt Harvey down, 
you're low, you're lessening your chance to win a championship. And frankly, I'd argue that it's a greater decision relative to what the the Nationals did because the Nationals could have said, well, you know, we've got three great starters. He's only going to start once. I think in the Mets' case, Harvey is a greater part of their whole than Strasburg was for the 2012 Nationals. Um, I, th- I think that if there, if we knew, if we knew that on the 190. At 191 and one-third innings, Matt Harvey's elbow is going to go kablooey, literally right there on the mound. Children are going to cry when they see it. I'd say fine, then you, but we're guessing. And I think that as long as we're guessing, you've got to balance the, the, the chance of a championship against that. The Mets don't exist so that Matt Harvey can make a bunch of money. The Mets exist so that they can make a bunch of money and win a championship. I thought Boris said something. There was a Tyler Kepner article in the Times today, uh, in the context Saturdays, if people want to go back and check, and it was – he had a quote that he said, he said, if the player's always going to want to pitch, this is kind of why it has to be Scott Boris making the case. Because you can't have Matt Harvey coming out and saying, well, I don't know if I should be pitching anymore because it's New York and they'll never let you live that down. And frankly, he doesn't want that. He wants to help. He doesn't want to spend October cheering on Jacob deGrom and John Neese and all these guys and not being a part of it. He's a competitor. He wants to pitch. I don't know. I, I, think it's a, I don't think there's a bad guy in this. I really don't. I know that we're supposed to, you know, black hats and white hats and all that. I don't, I don't believe. It. I think in this case, everybody's kind of behaving the way they're supposed to be behaving, and in, it's frustrating in part because we're all just guessing what is going to be right for Matt Harvey. When we know what's right for the Mets, we know what's right for the, the the finances and the team, but it's just so hard to know what's right for Matt Harvey. And well, and what it comes down to is the, the first time this happened to Matt Harvey, he was absolutely fine. Even into his last start, the velocity was there. It wasn't a great start. And then two days later, he had an MRI and Tommy John surgery. And like that, it was done. There's a chance that could happen again. But the idea that we know it's going to happen in 180, pitch, 180 innings, and what would that be? I could do math. 2,700 pitches. I think that gives us... I think that implies a level of exactitude. It implies a level of science to this that we just don't have. We just don't. We don't know. I mean, a repaired elbow, at least somebody's looked at it. You know, my feeling about, you know, the whole, the, uh, the Tommy John, quote unquote, let, let's not use the word, but the, the spate of Tommy John surgery we, we've seen. I don't think we're ever going to get a handle. I think it's largely, largely genetic, is what I'm saying. And until we can actually go in and measure everybody's ulnar collateral ligament and say that if it's 15 million millimeters wide with this kind of tensile strength, this pitcher will be able to pitch forever. And then these, this other guy where, you know, it's 10 millimeters wide, and, and please, doctors, don't yell at me. I'm just guessing here. And with this kind of tensile strength, I mean, we just can't measure it. We're guessing. We use things like MRIs to look at it and kind of look for things, but, you know, we just don't know when it comes to the elbow. And uh, I think eventually, I think 50 years from now, they might be able to make those kind of measurements. But for where we are today, you know, if it was me, and having <laughs> – I do think the Mets get the free roll here in that they get to see the Nationals' experience. You're – an avid Mets fan. I can say that? Yes. How are you going to feel in 2018 if they get knocked out of the playoffs this year and Matt Harvey Harvey got shut down, they get knocked out of the playoffs this year and three years from now, Matt Harvey's made one playoff start? You know, it's... I'm very... Like, I try to recognize that we're rooting for laundry, is what it comes down to. Like, I like... Like, I don't know Matt Harvey as a person. there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that he might be a little bit of an asshole, which is not in any way, shape, or form a bar to being an excellent baseball player, as we both know. Um, 
But, I mean, there is something, I think, to the idea that Matt Harvey came up through the system. It was sort of the first star of this generation of Mets pitchers and, and Mets players, you know, outside of David Wright, really. And there is sort of an added benefit, you know, some sort of marginal utility as a fan to having Matt Harvey pitch in the playoffs and pitch well and maybe win a World Series, where if it was, you know, Mike Hampton, like it was in 2000, not quite the same kind of feeling. So you want him to do well. But at the end of the day, if the Mets push him for another 50, 60 innings this year, they win a World Series and he comes in next March, blows out his arm and has have a second Tommy John surgery, you know, I get to look at that pendant on the wall with my kid 50 years from now and Matt Harvey's probably out $200 million. Yeah. So how do you balance that? Well, it, to me, it's part of the, the bargain that you take on when you play a team sport. If you only want to be concerned with this decision for yourself, go play tennis. But eventually, individual health gets measured up against... And let's be clear, this is not the NFL. In the NFL, guys are suffering injuries that affect their quality of life after they retire. We're talking about concussions. We're talking about mobility issues. One of the things about baseball is that we generally aren't dealing with that. Um, when players get concuss- we've lost players to concussions, their careers altered by them. But when we're talking about a UCL, I think we can we can we can have expectations of baseball players that would be I would be uncomfortable having a football player. So am I making that distinction yeah. correctly? But okay. I, I mean, I, said I think that- it's fair to say Matt Harvey has kind of part, it's part of the bargain here. Part of what comes with the money is taking a risk. I'm not saying pitching through pain. I'm not saying pitching when you're ineffective. I'm saying that unless there's actual evidence that you're starting to get hurt again, I think it's part of the bargain. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with that, but you sort of said it comes with the money, but it's, you know, the risk is not really being shared equally here. You know, if he had a pre-arb extension that the Mets probably were, to be fair, unable to offer, and Scott Morris would probably be unwilling to pay, right. at least the risk would be spread out in the two parts. Here, you know, if he blows out his arm, the Mets owe another $90,000 this year, and they can not tender it. Yeah, but here's the thing, that's, that issue is across the entire industry. It's not just specific to Matt Harvey, it's specific to any particularly young pitcher who's pitching until before his first payday. It's, you know, Jose Fernandez. Yep. And uh, well, the first edition of Matt Harvey. <laughs> you know, we, we've been. I mean, this is just the way it's structured. I mean, if you, this is an argument for all pitchers to take the first extension they're handed. But I mean, that, that's to me, that's a separate argument. I agree with you. There's a there's an imbalance of risk here. But let's also understand that winning a championship has value to the player too. Maybe not two hundred million dollars, but you know, I, I don't know. I'm not Matt Harvey. Uh, I don't know that a, a championship is worth that much money to anybody. But if you say, okay, you're, you'll lose a year, you'll get your service time and what have you, but you're going to lose a year, but your team will win a championship. Leave Matt Harvey out of it. I think a lot of players would take that bargain. I, I think so, too. I think just sort of the, the specter of a second Tommy John is a little bit yes, different. Yes, I agree. I agree. And I think that's sort of informing the, uh, his and, and Boris's feelings on that, whatever they may actually be and whatever they might actually have been told. So, Joe, tell our listeners where people can find you on the internet and elsewhere uh well i'm not gonna tell you elsewhere because i know met fans are not very happy with <laughs> uh, 
I'm I'm about six foot nine, guys. I'm really thin, and uh, I have a shaved head, so we're just gonna go with that. Uh, no, I'm uh, in Sports Illustrated most weeks. Uh, most recently, did a piece on the Cubs and their success this year. Uh, I also have uh, the Joshi and Baseball newsletter, which I started about uh, six years ago, and it's been running very well since. Uh, pretty excited. I, I tend to write a lot in October, so if you want to jump on now, you can get that information at joshian.com. Uh, I have an excerpt site uh, at a Blogspot site. You can get that information at my Twitter, at Joe underscore Sheehan. I also maintain a Facebook page that I try to take a lot of questions on. Uh, I don't get a lot of traffic there yet, but uh, if you want to check that out, just go look up Joe Sheehan on Facebook. It'll be the kind of roundish face guy with a goatee. Uh, let's see what else. I do a ton of radio. Uh, XM, Sirius, I'm on there. I'm on NBC Sports Radio a lot, so uh, if you're tooling around the XM dial or if you have an NBC radio affiliate go to Twitter you can find me on there uh, I do a lot of podcasts I recently did uh, Baseball HQ I'm um, doing this one I basically I'll talk baseball with anybody and don't take that don't take that the wrong way I've no no we appreciate it I love I just I love talking baseball it's fun, fun part of the gig I'm a guy who gets to write and talk about baseball for a living I'm very fortunate and we're glad to have you thanks for coming on thanks a lot Jeffrey Welcome back. Now it is time to answer your one email. You punched yourself out last week, which is fine. I'm sure we'll be back to normal service next week. Before we do that, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 137. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. Find us on the internet at amazingavenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash amazingavenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app, download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. This is your email. I should say we have answered that we. I could have just kept this segment intact too. We recorded on Friday night, but again, something may have changed during the uh, Friday game. Let's see. It's from Tom. If you were given the option of either having Terry Collins manage the bullpen choices for the rest of the year, or having it done by random selection of a Mets Twitter person, which would you choose? So I said I would still pick Terry Collins because once you introduce sort of the random Mets Twitter element, that it can go bad in a hurry. And then Terry Collins let Eric O'Flaherty face a right-handed batter in a high-leverage situation. Again. Again. <laughs> so I don't know what to do here now. I'm still probably picking Terry Collins. Yeah, I'm going with Collins as well, but it's by a much, much yeah, yeah, slimmer margin. Like, <laughs> yeah, the... Uh, the margin has gone down along with the Mets playoff odds after last night. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Probably by a similar percentage. And you just can't do that. I still would like to see the hate bot manage, though. Just we did, we did, we discussed that yeah. on Friday, and yes, the hate bot. My concern was that at this point, the hate bot just exists to troll the hate man, so he might make the worst possible decisions. I'm a little unclear on that. 
Um, look, there's no good solution to it at this point. It is now September. The bullpen is the bullpen. These guys have to get outs. Maybe not Eric O'Flaherty. But, you know, Sean Gilmartin and Addison Reed have to get the outs in the seventh. You know, should Eric Goodell have pitched probably two full innings? Yeah, probably. Should they have brought in Familia to face Prado instead? Yes. Because I know, I know, no manager uses their closer in a tie game on the road. I get it. It's against the rules of baseball. But look, you, I never understood that. The next run, if you're at the tie game on the road, ninth inning and beyond, the next run your opposing team scores, the game is over. You don't get a chance to tie. The game is over. Use your best relievers as much yeah, as possible and as early as possible. I and never if, understood it. And if, look, you get into a save situation and you don't have your designated closer, well, the next run your opponent scored doesn't end the game. It's a different leverage situation. Use your best pitchers and the highest leverage. When the next run, either you or your team, or the opposing team scores, means the most. Nobody seems to get that. I tweeted out that I thought Dario Alvarez might get used in the game before J.R. Smilia. We never found out because Terry Collins arguably made a worse decision. <laughs> I'm still taking him over some random dude on Mets Twitter that has like the Mets record in their name as their like display name or as a fake Sandy Alderson parody account that doesn't actually parody anything. Mm. It's satire. That was your email. We actually did get a second email. Like while we were recording, because that's a thing that happens. Did we really? Oh, I'm not yeah. even paying attention. I just happened to open my email. Uh... Is it a good one, or should we make him wait? It's like Matt's bullpen. It's moving Harvey to the bullpen, which I feel like we talked about. So one of our many Michaels will have to wait till uh, next week. Oh, well. sorry, or, Mike. Or after the National Series, we'll probably into the next podcast. Assuming we all haven't pickled our livers. There's a very good possibility that that might happen. So that is your email. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. I don't really have an IFK Gothenburg update because they're on the international break for uh, Euro 2016 qualifiers. But a note from last week, I didn't have it officially, but it is official now. Uh, Nicholas Roan, who left their last game on a stretcher, it will be out for six months with a knee injury, which is not good because they're, they're a little thin at center back now going into the, a tough home stretch. I'm a little concerned. I just want to see how it plays out. Can he pitch? Can we trade him Matt Harvey? <laughs> Matt Harvey's built like a center back. He's pretty athletic. You can see that. He might enjoy Sweden. Well, who wouldn't? I mean... I was just at Ikea today, and all I could think was, like, <laughs> Swedish soccer-related stuff. I I should, like, maybe buy some stuff, like, in their food section to have for uh, the IFK Gothenburg home stretch. Ikea has a food section. Yeah, yeah, and they have, like, a Swedish market. I mean, they, really? have, like, the, they have, like, the cafes where you get, like, the meatballs and oh. stuff, but they also have, like, an actual, like, Swedish food market where you can get, like, wow. lingonberries and crap like that. I legitimately have been to Ikea once, like, 20 years ago, and that's that's my singular experience of Ikea, so I did not know this. I now got a new couch. We need a new couch. I took a saw to the last one to get it out of the apartment. <laughs> it's still good. Yeah, that's what I needed to do. I regret nothing. I hated that couch. Now it's a love seat. <laughs> now it's at the Weathersfield dump. Ah. 
I'll plug Pitch Talks one more time. It's We're less than two weeks away now. You can get tickets on the Pitch Talks site. Use the code AMAZINGAVENUE. You get $5 off. Hope to see you there. It'll be fun. We're talking about minor leagues and prospect stuff in the middle of a chaotic pennant race. But you can ask uh, Mark Craig and Anthony DeComo all your crazy Matt Harvey questions. For me, I will only accept Luis Carpio questions. So yeah, that was uh, this was a show. The Mets have won. It's good. Bartolo Colon is bay. Of course. They're still five up. Important. I guess in, enjoy the Nat series, guys, and we'll see you next week for another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio.